Recordings on Air with Kiefer Dunn on London Radio. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this February episode of Buildings on Air. I'm your host, Kiefer Dunn, and this is, of course, the show where we talk about architecture, politics, sometimes more of one, less of the other. Um, but uh, we, we haven't had a show in a, a long time um, on account of uh, we were on vacation in January, um, as I hope many of you were. Um, but now we're back. Feels good to be back in the studio. We've got a terrific show lined up for you today. Uh, first, we're going to start talking with Alexander Eisenschmidt about uh, the history of a Chicago intersection. Um, an image of a Chicago intersection and uh, what that can tell us about modernity and all kinds of other things. Then we're going to open up our mailbag uh, with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm. That, of course, is the segment of our show where we ask uh, and answer your listener questions about architecture. And then lastly, we'll talk to artist Corey Smith, uh, who's going to talk about his new Prairie School performance art. Um, he's got a show coming up. It's going to be really cool. We'll talk to him uh, all about it. Um, yeah, and it's going to be like a pretty Chicago-heavy episode of Buildings on Air, I think. Um, but for all of the people who listen to the podcast version of this show, um, uh, I think uh, in, in are in far-flung places, I think you'll have something interesting uh, to hear about. Because um, even though we're talking about Chicago stuff, um, we're really going to be talking about larger themes, um, except for the next minute. Uh, because I want to give my neighbors on the long block of Low Avenue a shout-out for... Um, shoveling uh but not doing dibs <laughs> so it was like they're they're heroes um i appreciate the community spirit um and uh you know there's one person on our block though who shovels their car spot out and does dibs but does not shovel the sidewalk in front of their house um and i think that there's a, a special place uh reserved for, <laughs> for them they know who they are um but barring that very chicago specific content um i have alexander here in the studio um alexander eisenschmidt who's uh well i'll, I'll let you introduce yourself but you're you you teach at uic you write books you curate exhibitions. You have a design practice. You've got your finger, fingers in lots of pies. And, and I've followed your writing for, for a while, and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big admirer. And um, we've, we've, had a, 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 we've been trying to get the schedules in sync to get you on the show for months. And so I'm really happy to finally uh, have you here. Um, and, and so, yeah, maybe you can introduce yourself, um, fill, in, fill in my missing holes, and then, um, and then tell us. You, ha- you apparently had quite, quite the trying time. Uh, getting here yeah, yeah, this yeah. afternoon, yeah. it's it's really great to be here, and I'm I'm happy uh, that this was that this finally worked out. Yeah, yeah I, I I walked some um, ninety flights of stairs <laughs> because the the elevators uh, at Marina City were all flooded, and so at one o'clock, um, about you know ten minutes before I actually wanted to leave, uh, I heard on the intercom that um, everything is down and we should stay at home. And so um, I then quickly packed my bag and ran those stairs down. But uh, yeah, yeah. on time. Speaking about the intensity of, of, of the urban modern, experience. Of the modern city, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's, uh, yeah, like, like I said, I think that means that you are now officially uh, the most dedicated buildings on air guest we've ever Certainly had. Uh, especially, especially if the elevators aren't working when you get back, which I, my fingers are crossed for you. Um, 
Yeah, the the, the specific um, article that we're going to use as a kind of like launching pad. I mean, I know these these are kind of ideas that you've explored in Chicagoisms. You've, I know you're working on a book that maybe has some similar themes. Um, but this is this is a, a, a little essay that appeared in the Architecture Theory Review um, uh, recently. It's called "The Story of an Intersection" or how early Chicago became an urban laboratory, mm-hmm. um, and and it's this this fantastic image. Uh, 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 from a postcard, uh, at least that's how you you, you found it originally. Yeah. Um, maybe you can describe what's what's going on here. Um, well, what what you see in the image is, and I brought it actually in here. That's so incredible. maybe you can post yeah. it on your on your. On yes, your that's a great idea. Um, for for people to see it, but you, what you see, it's an in, in intensely packed intersection. It's the it's the street, uh, Dearborn and Randolph intersection. Um, it's the, the the postcard is from 1912, and what you see is sort of um, tailgating streetcars, horse carriages that block ways, and and people on foot that flood out of stores, delivery wagons in in, in the center of the intersection, and then this is a, strangely enough there are three policemen two on horseback and one on foot that sort of calmly observe the the situation right. um, and so right it's it's a it's traffic from all directions uh, that where where movement is implied but it's really capturing a kind of standstill uh, simply because there's there's too much movement uh, f- yeah or too much traffic for any movement to, to happen and so Circulation patterns had broken down um, under the the weight of a kind of saturated um, uh, traffic. Right. Yeah, it's definitely one of those images that sort of really uh, like projects an atmosphere, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? right? It's like, it's like you can, you really feel enveloped by it. Um, even, you know, a hundred plus years later, sort of, sort of looking at it. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, and I think one of the reasons I, I, I was telling you in the kind of run up to this, that, you know, it's, it's my, my MO as an interviewer to ask a really big unfair sort of question. <laughs> uh, and, and then we, and we chat about it, but you know, I think, I think having, having read your work before and, and read this essay, um, one of the things that it got me thinking about was how Chicago at this sort of turn of the century moment, um, you know, this kind of 20 or 30 years uh, was was such an incredibly energetic uh, uh, place. And, and, and this image sort of really, really captures that because of the intense sort of urbanization and industrialization. I mean, I think you cite this statistic about how in like 50 years, starting from like 18, the city's founding in what, 1837, mm-hmm. it like grew to a million and inhabitants right like in in such a short amount of time um that's that's it's a very very intense sort of uh uh uh, place and time um but what's really fascinating about this city is how it becomes kind of like and well not just met like a a real metaphor like a living metaphor uh, of of modernity mm-hmm. um and how people from all kinds of far-flung places uh, sort of saw chicago as a kind of heart of um uh, modernity and like a, a lab for a future city um and so i'm, I'm curious what the history of sh- chicago uh can tell us about modernity and why this place in particular maybe to like ask the question in reverse why this place in particular kind of carried with it those those sort of connotations um why did people sort of see that in this place um, um, back then? I, I mean, I, this, yeah. this image is a fantastic sort of lens to to to, uh-huh. to ask all of those questions. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and you are 
you're right. I mean, Chicago has often been portrayed as this quintessential yeah. American metropolis, maybe the Ur metropolis. Uh, but it's also, I mean, leading up to that image or yeah. leading up to the turn of the century, looking at the the history of Chicago is is, is important because of as you, as you mentioned, right? It's it's rapid pace during mm-hmm. its formation during the nineteenth century, and it's really intimate linkage to trade, both industrial and agriculturally, and 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 so the the city. Um, I often sort of compare it to the kind of crystal ball that enables right. us to see the sheer power of modernity mm. and modern urbanization. I mean, if one sort of just looks quickly at one location, Wolf Point in Chicago, right, by the <laughs> early 19th century, there were only, there, there are some illustrations that we know yeah. today of a few huts and, and a few tents of, of settlers, uh, while by 1890 the city um, had, had, so exponentially grown uh, to over a million of inhabitants and also growing to become the largest footprint in North America. Hmm. And so to that later point, what made that possible, that growth, was was really the implementation of, of the grid, which turned, as Gronin would say, the, the prairie into yeah. a commodity. The, our, our spiritual grandfather, Bill right, right, right. William Cronin. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, which I appreciated seeing that reference here. <laughs> yeah. So that, that, that expansion that the city yeah. really, where, where the city wholeheartedly um, embraced industrialization, um, and also, um, I guess, cultivating a mentality that that glorified progress, mm. um, and and you know, for for that very reason, uh, it often becomes sort of cited as the kind of prototypical um, or, or or metropolis, and and it has uh, very clear link linkages if one sort of thinks of. Right, modernity and and its flirtations with crisis, mm. or its its constant optimism, or its ambitions that 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 um, you know modernity always um, is is linked with, or its fascinations yeah. with technology. All of these one could find one can find very clear and very like intense examples <laughs> of this, sure. and, and and hence um, you know not only scholars of of urbanism, uh, but you know. Architects um, and and people that are interested in in urban culture have often looked at at Chicago even uh, during its running up to become one of the largest metropolises in the world uh, as as a kind of um, example to look at uh, in order to understand what modernity or what what their city could later on look like right. uh, as a kind of urban. Uh, forecasting during the forensics of, of Chicago, sort of understanding, okay, this is what urbanity might look like yeah. eventually. Yeah, which is which is extremely interesting, right? I mean, as, especially because I think um, we tend to think in this day and age about, you know, all, all of those things in which you describe, sort of the fetishization of technology, this kind of um, uh, in, in insane sort of sort of optimism amidst <laughs> like like uh, the sort of churning masses of like humanity and all of the like things positive, negative, and otherwise that that entails, like that 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 sort of whole. 
like I, I, I feel like we live in that moment right now. And I also feel like that that moment usually gets presented as very singular, right? As if, as if we're always living in some sort of precipice. But, but I, I, I really like how, how an image like this, uh, you can, you can sort of realize that like, no, the, the, we've, we've always been on that precipice or at least for the last sort of 120, 40, 50 years, like however you define modernity, that that's just sort of, um, actually maybe a, a, a constant state of being that it's not, um, um, a sort of <laughs> linear march, right? But yeah. but that there's there's some underwriting, consistent sort of ethic. Um, I mean, this is in many ways sort of what Manfredo Tafori writes about. Tafori, <laughs> who's maybe a few a, a few uh, layers down the theory rabbit hole uh, for the show, but um, but I but I think it's something that I'm sort of in, interested in because you you always sort of feel it viscerally, like in in your day to day life. Um, but but it has this kind of history. I don't know if that makes sense uh, it, it, I mean in the larger scheme yeah. of things that, that we're still in the age of, of modernity I think that is, is, is spot on uh, though I, I, I would also say that uh, there are probably other cities mm. that are uh, a, a bit more aggressive nowadays sure. and, and, and I guess that's why I'm often looking at the history of Chicago in, uh, partially because it's just such a fascinating history but it's right. also um, sort of um, holding a mirror up to Chicago today where it isn't uh, that kind of laboratory <laughs> right. anymore. No, it, is, no, it certainly um, is not. And yeah. so it's also partially a, a critique of the, of, the, yeah. of the here and now. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I, you know, you, you do, um, you kind of see the echoes of, of that experimentation uh, in, in the kind of urban fabric. Um, but when I think about, yeah, when I think about Chicago today, I, it's a far cry from the sort of like ur- urban bustling metropolis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's everything is sort of very very polished uh, and it's a very clean city right uh, um it's one of the re- it's 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 actually a kind of place i, I always say where you can uh, a big city where you can live like a person <laughs> uh in in contrast to maybe maybe new york or or san francisco places which are very much sort of on maybe on the forefront of sort of urban experimentation well i don't know about urban experimentation yeah i mean I, sure. maybe maybe that's the question <laughs> though is they're certainly on the forefront on in, in terms of expensive living expensive of living right uh-huh. and I, maybe maybe that's the question is is i think you know we live in in a kind of moment uh, of capitalism and a kind of uh, late capitalism if you will um where these sorts of infrastructure networks that you you describe as being so sort of integral to early urbanization uh, early modernity um, have maybe been kind of usurped by other types of logistical networks um, and maybe that's kind of one of the reasons why the urban lab is not at the kind of forefront of um, and maybe it should be right <laughs> um, I don't know I, that's just a thought a thought I had maybe a kind of speculative yeah 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 um, well I mean I guess to me, the it's 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 really the the re, the reason why that image uh, stood out yeah. uh, is is obvious, right? I mean, it's kind of one has almost a visceral reaction to it, <laughs> right? But then, 
you know, I, 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 I only wrote about it when I realized the, the, the starting point of mm. that image. Yeah. Um, for me, it was always, I, I often used it in lectures and I said, well, you know, this, this shows you a, a day in, in the metropolis because also the, the title of the, of the postcard, or there's often a kind of label on, on right. the postcard <laughs> that says a busy day on Dearborn and Randolph Street, Chicago, which suggests that it's a kind of every day that is the kind of rush hour situation. Yeah, which and would I, be a nightmare. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but as I started digging into it, I, I realized that it's actually a, um, a, a designed traffic jam. And at first I thought, oh, this is now suddenly like it's I can no longer talk about this as this kind of, oh, this is this intense image uh, that shows as it's actually it's a designed image. But it, it makes actually a, a much clearer point. Yeah. Because as I as I started doing researching this and, and really delving deep for an, a year on on the history of this postcard, um, understanding that the uh, uh, the the Corps of Engineers in Chicago had actually made tests at multiple intersections starting in 1909, um, where they where they um, took the the police off the intersection saying, oh, we don't regulate anything anymore for five minutes and let's see what happens. Yeah. And and to me, that is really mind-boggling. I mean, yeah. to, this, to the extent that you would, you would let uh, a kind of essential infrastructure collapse in order to observe. Yeah. And it, it really shows a, a particular mentality that, that the city or city officials, um, architects and planners had at the time really using and being able to use the city as a true laboratory. Sure. Um, and now, obviously, they speculated with uh, with visible um, infrastructures, right, and, and infrastructures that the image, where the image reveals where those trams go right. and, and, and <laughs> where the goods go. Um, but that's, say, like, I don't think we today have the ability any, uh, any longer to use the city as that kind of lab for, yeah. for experimentation and so it's 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 to <laughs> yeah. me that the writing is this kind of uh, way of, of maybe also calling up on uh, the current uh, architects or planners to be a little bit more aggressive in the way that the city is used um, and obviously also talk to city officials to sort of question uh, the the kind of hermetic uh, way in which the, this, it's always it seems to be about the preservation of right. a current situation and of the status quo yeah. and not the questioning of the, uh, the the given situation right yeah it's yeah it's interesting to because th- one of the one of the parts that I appreciated most about the the article uh, was and, and your your sort of unpacking of the image was that the infrastructure was not left um, as some sort of abstract thing, um, which I, I think we often uh, infrastructure is, is frequently discussed in kind of contemporary urban studies, but it's usually left in this sort of like abstract limbo. But I, I, I you know the, the the amazing thing about this this image is you, you say like okay well this streetcar is has Elston Avenue on it right like in this this storefront is is a travel agency that is or, or um, uh, an office that's selling, you know, right. fares on, on a transatlantic ocean liner. Uh-huh. The infrastructure is not sort of immaterial. It's it's all sort of very, very present. Um, and, and, uh, and, 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 um, 
impacting the very real material conditions and experience of like living in a place. Um, And, and I think that's, that's, that's just really, really important to keep in mind. Um, You know, (laughs) I don't really have a point beyond that. I I mean, I, I, but except to say that, you know, I think that's maybe one of the things that, um, that sort of, I don't know, differentiates the kind of cult of progress of from the 1890s to the kind of cult of progress now um, is, is the kind of the way like things, things are allowed to be sort of, I mean, of course, clearly they're not, but they're, they're allowed to be sort of dematerialized um, in particular, particular ways. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I, like, yeah, like now, now I think a politician um, or a theorist or, or, um, you know, any of the people who would, who would be in charge of kind of urban experiments. Um, um, they, it's, it's almost good enough for them to sort of, to talk about, use the same language of progress without actually, I mean, because this is, this would be a bold thing to do to shut down a city, right? Or, or, yeah, even just <laughs> yeah. shutting down an, an intersection right. quite, quite bold. Um, absolutely. Yeah. 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 I mean, that's why the, the, like, the reading or the, the 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 reading of these images as small attempts of a kind of like just an isolated or or uh, very uh, unpacking a micro history uh, yeah. is I, I found it really really productive uh, because it enables us to really sort of you know zoom into one image and then seeing this kind of larger repercussions right. um, rather than sort of starting with a with a meta theory and yeah. then working one's, one's way down. Um, and uh, obviously it, it cannot answer all questions. Sure. Right? So, you know, you, you might ask, okay, so what about, how, how can this tell us more about wireless networks? And to, yeah. Sure. So, and, you know, to some extent it probably can if one sort of delves in and says, okay, well, actually under under the street, what the image doesn't show are then these these tunnels that uh, were first telegraph and telephone and then, yeah. you know, allowed larger transportation and goods. Um, but I guess if one sort of stays with the visual, one, one sort of can can yeah also unpack the, the 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 networks of the city but then also the the the, the global connectedness that yeah. um, Chicago is somehow right in the in the middle of nowhere in the middle <laughs> of the flat prairie sure. uh, has the Cunard line as this kind of transatlantic uh, um, liner advertising and and really making sure that one understands its 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 global connectiveness yeah um and i mean to to me that that is also then where where the image connects so vividly to to visitors of the city at the time right i mean there was only there there's of course only a small percentage of of visitors from abroad that 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 came to chicago in in the uh, when one compares it to today, when when we can, or yeah. when a lot of more people can can travel, um, but uh, and many actually, you know, many received this photograph <laughs> <laughs> and and had from yeah. that photograph a judgment of of the city because it, it was a it was a postcard that ran at least for ten years from 1910 to 19, in the, into the 1920s, 
Right. Very, very uh, uh, successful run for, for yeah. Postcard. I like uh, your, your headline, uh, traffic jam as advertisement, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, and yeah. this is really what it was. Um, but then there were also others that were able to to visit. And, and one of the, uh, the the people that I often cite uh, was, was Max Weber, mm. who uh, of course, this German um, economic theorist and sociologist who came to Chicago in 1904 with a group of other sociologists like Werner, uh, yeah, Werner Sombart and Ferdinand mm-hmm. Tönnies. And, and they, they, they actually were supposed to go to St. Louis or they are going to St. Louis for a congress, hmm. but they stopped by in Chicago. They made a point that they came to Chicago because yeah. they knew – that uh, this was the city to see at that point, uh-huh. and what they what they described was was the sheer intensity uh, of the city, and they called the city's traffic monstrous and utterly hair raising. Yeah. Uh, but they also declared that this is what modern reality is like. Right. And, and so in publications, once they returned to their respective cities, uh, they, they, they published uh, yeah. about their experience. And, um, and there one can see how these visitors had you know, a very similar <laughs> experience to what one would imagine a visitor of that intersection would, right. would have. And, and like I said earlier, right, that, that then, then coming back and saying, okay, well, let's look at at Berlin, there are trends mm. emerging here, uh, and seeing if one sort of looks at these trends that the city of, that we already witness in the city of Berlin, one can sort of look at at Chicago and could say, okay, this is going to be very similar. Right. Um, and so for that, you know, it's on the one hand, of course, it's it's a laboratory for the city itself, but it's also an urban forecaster for for other cities. Yeah, which is extremely interesting, and I think it also poses sort of you know, interesting questions about, um, you know, like, like uh, chaos versus uh-huh. f- form, right? And uh, you know, I mean, it's it's clearly a very chaotic image, but that that very chaos is sort of, as you alluded to earlier, enabled by this very orderly urban form, the grid, that allowed sort of, you know, um, I think as William Cronin would say, the sort of conquering of the territory uh-huh. and natural resources and the, their kind of commoditization and, and um, a connection to the city, right? Um, right? But 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 the image is kind of complete chaos, and 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 the infrastructure is 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 chaotic, um, and and I th- I think it's really easy for especially you know folks folks of my sort of political persuasion to sort of just like point point at at at, at sort of capitalism and say you know oh it's like totally laissez faire like you know whatever else but but there's there you know and and, and it's sure. also a kind of myth yeah, that yeah. that. Um, you know, the people who benefit most from that system uphold the kind of idea that like, oh, well, we're just all pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps here. And there's kind of no rhyme or reason except for for, for we worked hard. Right. But but of course, there there's these kind of um, these kind of systems and sort of, you know, bal- it's this, this constant sort of balancing act uh, that's that's influenced by. A ton of of different forces, political, economic, um, ideological, blah 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 blah. Right? I, I, it's, it's, and it's yes. really it's really yeah, interesting yeah. how 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 this kind of image <laughs> enters into that. Yeah. Right? Well, it's interesting that you, that you cite the chaos as something that, of course, during that time is really yeah. created 
uh, through a kind of laissez-faire economy that you know where capitalism has just gone wild right. uh, and let loose. Um, Though I guess one could also question, right, if one sort of thinks of today, uh, kind of the, the neoliberalist um, um, age is very uh, clever in cleaning up uh, <laughs> and making everything orderly. And right. so I'm actually I'm much more um, skeptical of of the pla- of the planned well, and sure. orderly and, <laughs> and picket fenced uh, and environments that that we witness yeah. today. And so that suddenly. The 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 um, you know more anarchic moments, uh, be they uh, traffic or infrastructure, as in this image or otherwise, could actually point towards a kind of more rebellious right. um, urban <laughs> urban image. But I think you're you're putting your finger on an important question: this this notion or that relationship between um, chaos and order, yeah. or uh, formlessness versus form. I mean, right. Or, or even the the image that's an, an interesting layer you've just said in the image of chaos of, of order uh, under you know hiding a kind of actuality of chaos or, or the other way around right <laughs> there's right. many many ways that those things can be combined um, that kind of boggles the mind yeah 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 and and so I mean I guess the the the, the article to some extent is also yeah. pushing against common historical narratives that tend to focus on architecture's problems with urban turmoil mm. and its tendencies to view the existing city as a as a challenge to architecture and urban form like a, for a challenge for like for, a, a gauntlet thrown to architects to like put some order to this right right yeah. and 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 this is this is a common i mean the, the emergence of städtebau or of city planning or urban yeah. design all all happen in in the late 19th century right. not by uh, no by coincidence right there's right. The, the emergence of the of the industrial metropolis yeah. and so in order to make sense of that environment, new disciplines formed. Right, new, new, and new, prof- new professions, professionalizations of those disciplines. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's. Uh, we were talking about my sort of grad thesis work, and this is one of the kind of conclusions of it. Was you had all of these these architects and and uh, from you know Olmsted, Frederick Law Olmsted, who were working on the kind of Columbian Exposition here in Chicago in 1893, and it, it was this kind of it was an urban laboratory, very much along the lines that you're describing. Uh, Around very similar issues, and ten years later, what are those those characters up to? Uh, they're at Harvard establishing the first school of city planning, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Like, a, there's a there's a kind there's kind of direct relationships there. Yeah, it's super fascinating, right? And and so I guess you know looking at these at these micro histories yeah. provides us with a kind of it, it, to some extent with an alternative account that mm. that shows really that there was. An, an attraction to urban chaos, right. if you want, um, as well as a, a, a really a blatant use of the city as a testbed hmm. to stage experiments. Yeah. And so to, to me, the, 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 the larger project for, for me has always been to, to better understand our current fascinations and, and, and anxieties yeah. um, in, in regards to urbanization. And so looking at such an intense history as the the kind of the 
the, the, the urban growth of Chicago m might well help us with, with that. Right. Yeah. And um, I think that's one of the interesting things about sort of um, about your bio is that you also are engaged in in sort of um, design, design work and teaching and, and, and the history. Like <laughs> it's it's all one sort of con continuous operation, um, which I which I very much appreciate. Usually these things get specialized apart from each other. And I, I don't quite <laughs> understand why, <laughs> because I think that, uh, you know, the, these kinds of histories help help us find um maybe i don't know it's it's not good to like look for history to find solutions to current problems with exactly it's not one to, so one to one but 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 it helps uh, helps us kind of understand what's happening in, in a larger sense um so i'm curious how, how is is that how these these sort of practices for you and engage each other um is it is it a kind of um a, a soup of sort of issues and agendas that that sort of um, uh, and, and projects sort of emerge out of them. I know you're, you're engaged yeah. in this visionary cities uh -huh, project, uh -huh. um, or or is it is it sort of more more operative and in one to one? Um, it's I mean it's definitely operative. I yeah. hope I think yeah. so. <laughs> uh, but it's also I mean it has always been difficult for me to distinguish the 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 writing from the design yeah. work from the from the teaching and yeah. so at a certain point um i i simply committed to not making the distinction <laughs> um, sure. or or at least or I'd sort of separating or or you know, dividing my my day uh, in 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 writing before noon and yeah. and and then syllabi uh. and 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 designing in the afternoon and then reading in the evening to sort of be refueled yeah. uh, for for the morning session and and this has been really really productive and 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 in the teaching as well right we're we're currently working on a, uh, a seminar is called In Support of the City or Architecture in yeah. Support of the City where uh, I'm asking this this team of students to, to focus in one on, on one very particular image that is then forensically analyzed. Mm. Um, so similar to, to yeah. what, what we just discussed in, in, the, in the article, in order to unpack uh, these kind of hidden histories that, that might tell us more about the relationship between architecture and this thing outdoors <laughs> we, we, we call city. What do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Well, and, and also, yeah, because there's, there's, there's so many different sort of um, frameworks that, that architects have kind of used or, or sought to use to understand this relationship of building the city or even the difference between sort of city and, and urbanization um, and, and, I, and I and I and I think that that trying to figure out what that means in sort of concrete terms for 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 the life of a place and, and connecting it back through this kind of images I mean um, is a really is a really kind of powerful powerful tool to Thank do you. that yeah. um, it's a really clever idea I'd be, I'd be curious to hear what your students come up with <laughs> okay we'll have, you, we'll have you over for the for the final review yeah, yes I, I would I would like that very much um, we've got a few a few minutes left here is, is is there anything that um, that that I've I've sort of forgot to talk about here? <laughs> I mean, oh, like you know, you, I mean, we could talk to, about to pitch my my, my, <laughs> my current book is about to come out, but I also learned we, we cannot. We no, cannot it's non-commercial non radio. We won't advertise <laughs> it. But but I am what, it, what I am curious to know what it's about. <laughs> oh, it's but, yeah. called the Good Metropolis yeah. um, from urban formlessness uh, to metropolitan architecture, and, and it looks at architecture's fascination with the the, the turmoil of mm. the modern city yeah um, right it, it's like conventional narratives we sort of 
understand architecture to work ag- against the industrial metropolis, mm. clearing away, you know, the, the, the image of, of Le Corbusier's hand over, <laughs> over Paris, sure. uh, trying to restructure uh, an, an urban condition. And, and this is an attempt to, to revise to some extent that history and show how architects have always been really fascinated by uh, the, the, the contemporary existing city and mm. not just to use it as a springboard for, for experimentation and for new visions, but really as a, as a way to uh, a- adjust their mentalities towards uh, a design thinking that is that, that takes into account the existing city and sort of plays with it. Sure. Yeah, so that that's um that's a very that's a very interesting point of view, and I think like it's a very like humanities forward approach to it. In some ways, I think uh, to to un- uh, to understand, I don't know, sort of, um, I don't know. We've been we've been I, I, I've been trying to put a better word on this. Maybe you can help me. This is going to sound really really dumb for a, a smart show about architecture, but I've I've sort of been trying to discuss a similar set of issues in in my studio and in my teaching and I haven't found a better way of talking about it than like as an architect like you have to like understand what the vibes are, what the uh, vibes uh-huh. of a place are right uh-huh. and, and and engage in that in some sort of critical and operative way um but but I haven't I haven't found a better way of of explaining than 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 vibes mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but but cuz it really is a kind of t- totality of things that that is right. as much about sort of art as it is about sociology and poetry and kind of you know these these sort of technical networks of uh, mm-hmm. you know um, it, there, there's there's so much that goes into it um, the the kind of the kind of it can be very overwhelming right 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 yeah. it's it's I mean I, I think it is important to to dissect uh, a site when one is supposed to work on it or yeah. to to you know to dissect a city when one 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 starts to move right. to it. Um, <laughs> and so I, I don't I don't know if I have a term. I have different episodes, right, yeah. where, where, where Manfredo, not, um, where uh, Venturi would, would talk mm. about, like, um, the, the um, you know, do, do what, what um, drives you forward right. or, or be fascinated by the city and then delve into it. Mm. Um, um, and I guess... They would, uh, the, the Robert Venturi and Dean Scott Brown would sort of be really fascinated by um, cities that uh, conventional architects yeah. uh, would would no longer or would not dare to look at. Right. Um, and and to me, those are um, interesting stories and and really important for us today to keep in mind yeah. because otherwise we're simply sort of treading in in, right. in, in the same spot over <laughs> and over again. Right, right, yeah. Maybe it's just easier to write about the architect who's making making a, a, a blank slate for themselves, right? Uh, and more difficult to sort of think about these things. Yeah. Uh, the, the the kind of galaxy brain of everything, if you if you will. <laughs> uh, well, Alexander Eisenschmidt, I really appreciate you. Um, making making the time and um the literal physical effort to go down 90 <laughs> right, right, right. 90 flights of stairs <laughs> to make it to the show um it was uh, worth it. thank you and i and i and i hope it's not the last time uh we'll we'll uh hear your voice on this we'll program definitely come back. Thanks, fantastic Peter. thank you 
If you enjoy listening to Buildings on Air and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. Hey, Kiefer, you know what that song means? <laughs> Tell me, Jamie. It means it's time for the Buildings on Air mailbag. Yes, it is. And um, I'm so happy to be back in the studio with Anne Louie and Craig Reschke of Future Firm for the Buildings on Air mailbag. How's it going, y'all? It's great. We're happy to be back. Yeah. I we f- survived the polar vortex. <laughs> I was saying that we, we all need to make T-shirts for ourselves. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I haven't seen you guys in forever because I was basically out of town for like an entire month. And then we were trapped in an iceberg and then we for tra- the last week. We were trapped in an iceberg, and I've also <laughs> had a sinus infection, oh, which no. I'm still getting over. Um, and so I've just been like at home um, or in a different place. Acupuncture, so. my friend. Oh, Acupuncture. Yeah? Yes. Is that the thing? It's the most effective treatment for sinus infections okay. far better than antibiotics does Good. the sinus infection give you a better radio voice uh may- maybe <laughs> it does not improve my well okay it doesn't the, the sinus infection doesn't impact my interviewing skills at all but the Sudafed uh. probably, <laughs> the Sudafed probably Do does you feel more like neil diamond yeah, in the morning? yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah uh, during during the break Ale- alexander was like this this is a really loose show and i'm like yeah it is it is usually a very loose show but i might have been a little bit looser than normal um so hopefully Hopefully not too much. Um, anyway, I've got plenty of good questions um, today for us for the mailbag, um, including including um, a couple from two of our biggest fans, and I'll get to those later on. Uh, but are you guys ready to just? Who, wait, are, who are our biggest fans? It must fans? be Marianella and Craig's parents. No, no, no. no. <laughs> I, I actually um, uh, one one is from um, d- dear dear friend, uh, listener to the show, Architecture Lobby um, member uh, Daham. Um, uh-huh. I won't drop his last name <laughs> on the radio, mm-hmm. but he knows who he is. I, I I officially christened him the number one fan mm. uh, when I saw him over over mm-hmm. winter break. Um, but but yeah, I mean we can we can stage. You know, um, American Gladiator style, uh, <laughs> I don't know, bouts um, for, for that belt. Uh, you know, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm open to anything, really. If, if someone wants yep. to contend for that mantle, um, write, write in with a suggestion. About it's, only, <laughs> it's only Craig's dad who sends us live time corrections of our technical responses. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Glad That's somebody not, does. Yeah, right? <laughs> That's not how you seal the brick. Yeah, what yeah. are you guys thinking? Yeah, I've, I've often thought that we should have some sort of um, retraction peer review. error. <laughs> to, or, or just... Uh, peer review is good. Yeah, no. Peer review. QAQC. No. Um, <laughs> Mailbag QAQC. Well, in absence of any of those things, some sort of disclaimer. <laughs> just oh, yeah. uh, So here, I'm saying it now. Umbrella disclaimer for all past episodes and future episodes of Buildings on Air. Um, you know, this is just us talking on the radio. Mm. It's not actual advice. <laughs> I think the legal term is... <laughs> To the best of our ability. Yeah, don't no. don't don't hold us liable. We're not liable. I'm yeah. saying it now. Uh, so, despite the fact that there are architects <laughs> in the show, we are not giving you advice about building right. buildings. Exactly. I actually have the uh, renewal application for our insurance <laughs> on my desk, and I'm like, mm, what kind of questions are on that? Anything yeah. about do you give advice on the radio? Yeah, right. Um, the answer is no. Um, no, no. This no. is just this is not to be taken as advice. <laughs> just it's just entertainment. Just yes. just advisement. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so without further ado, um, let's answer a question 
Um, that's that's. Well, I have a couple very topical questions given given the polar. Uh, experience we've all just had. Um, what are some good home improvement projects that you can do during the winter? I duct taped like our back door. <laughs> 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 uh, you, what, for what? Duct taped Why? Yeah. <laughs> our back door is a, uh, a wood door that is probably 70 years old and yeah. has no weather stripping on it. Oh. And the there's also no threshold, so there's like an inch underneath the door that Yikes. cold air just like kind of comes in and our landlord put one of those uh two tubes in a piece of cloth under it you know that like swings <laughs> oh, with the door sure. and does nothing to <laughs> stop air from coming in yeah so the night before the polar vortex i duct taped the whole thing closed to stop at least the airflow from coming through yeah was Just, did it work uh, there's yeah. frost on the duct tape now. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> it uh, worked. It worked a little. There's two, you know, key yeah. things to keeping a building warm: both air infiltration and insulation. So we didn't fix the insulation problem, but we fixed the air infiltration. Yeah. Well, problem. maybe now is also valuable to say that our office and apartment used to be a bar called the Poor Man's Pub, which um, we just learned actually that name like a few weeks ago. So basically, we have a storefront in the front, and we live in the back. And in between the storefront and our apartment is a is an old fridge for where mm. they used to keep the beer with a bunch of beer doors. And then like our heat hasn't been working really well, and the back wall is really uninsulated. So our whole apartment was like very frosty in the back. So we've been sleeping in the most insulated place in the whole house, which is the <laughs> beer <laughs> fridge. <laughs> so now if you come over, there's a bed in our beer fridge, and we put every blanket we own, and we just get in there with the dog, you know. Close the beer (laughs) door at night, and that's how it's been for the last week. (laughs) Well, the apartment used to be cold because of the uh, leaky door in the back, and last night it was cold because our furnace in that part of the house just stopped working. Oh, yikes. Well, at least it made it through the worst of it. That's true. true. Uh, Um, I have another uh, winter home improvement idea, which is that um, I think that uh, when we worked at a big practice, to me, um, architecture was kind of a-seasonal. You just, like, did it through the year. Like, people put up tall towers Mm. in China, whether it was May, November, or April. Yeah. or you were always like on track to do something like that. Um, but in our new practice with small, like smaller scale residential commercial construction, and in Chicago, you know, people really do only build in the construction season of right, the year. Right. Um, so it's been really great to work with our residential clients during the winter when we're not under as much of a gun as in the spring when mm. everybody wants to, um, you know, kind of break ground. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess yeah. I would say like one project to work on during the fall is to plan and yeah. design and take the time to like figure out what you really want to yeah. do. So oh. that when it warms up, then you can actually, um, you know, hit the ground running Co-s- with everything. Locked co-sign up. that a million percent yeah. uh, because often our clients uh, in, in, in Pigeon Studio, have the same sort of thing where they, <laughs> they'll come to us and they'll be like, I'm thinking of a design, pro- like I want to have like a warm, <laughs> like I want this beautiful patio or like thing or like in a month <laughs> because I want to enjoy it before it gets cold. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, you know, and sometimes if it happens in the beginning, we can accommodate that. Um, but knowing, knowing what the city building department is like, um, um, they do their best. They're overworked. I don't. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> I'm trying to get building permits right now, so I don't want to make anyone mad. <laughs> Does anybody deserve an area in this process? <laughs> Actually, yes, plenty of people. Yes, positive uh, reinforcement. I, have, I, I can. I'll give out some areas, but it feels unethical and non-commercial radio <laughs> to give out some areas for active projects. Uh, but Fair more enough. done. Yeah, I mean, but, but I thought that but, was the whole point of giving out areas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're not out of the goodness of our hearts. Okay? No. <laughs> and you know, an area really is nothing because it's an area. Yeah. Right. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's like a Marvel no prize. You get no prize. Yeah, exactly. so, I mean, <laughs> don't want you worried about. It. Yeah, you know, I will say uh, a good thing for this time of year is if you're a gardener, is planting, getting ready uh, seeds and planting that, and getting a greenhouse maybe together. And there's yeah. a lot of ways you can actually build very simple home cold frames and greenhouses. Yeah. And that's a good thing to do uh, when you're looking at the pathetic produce selection at your local <laughs> supermarket, which I will not name. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> because you're just sick and tired of eating only Brussels sprouts <laughs> and yams because those are the only two things they apparently have in stock, Brussels sprouts and yams. So that's, that's also a good project. Yeah. Tiling is something you can also mm. do actually yeah. uh, in the winter months because tiling you – don't, you don't really want to do things with fumes. Like yeah. oil staining your floors probably or, isn't the greatest or idea. Or like a carpentry makes lots of sawdust that you know, right. if you don't have a dedicated space for that sort of thing. Right. Be, and when you don't really want to do that around a live furnace right. anyways. Like say, say you've got a wood shop in your basement. It's probably not a great idea if you don't have some sort of vent for the sawdust. Yeah. Sawdust s- is explosive. Sawdust is explosive. <laughs> yes. You don't want to do that. So, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, tiling is tiling's a good thing to yeah, do. That's a- you can get your backsplash going. Yeah. Get that fly floor that you've always wanted done. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, really good, that's a really good suggestion. Also a good time to mark where you have air infiltration, where there's cold <laughs> spots in the floor so that ah. when it gets warm out, you can fix them. Yeah. Mm. Or if you have leaks, say, from frost heats. Say <laughs> uh, <laughs> so if you have some, some leaking areas, you can identify those so that when it gets above, you know, 45 degrees, you might be able to find those. <laughs> those <as well>. Yes. <laughs> Um, those are all good suggestions. Um, now I'll ask the next question, which is, um, <laughs> is it possible to design a poison-free building? Uh, this question comes from Alexander Froelich um, of the Seattle Architecture Lobby chapter. Um, good work, y'all. Keep up the good work. I see I see them on Instagram and stuff, doing all kinds of cool stuff. Um, but he, has, uh, he, he says, my friend and I were discussing his difficulty avoiding red-listed building materials, um, especially if you use anything in liquid form. It's basically impossible to not have poison in your building. Um, and Alex recently was thinking about this and sort of laughing about it because he recently went on a tour about historical Seattle and hearing how early settlers, um, and, and all the people who lived in, in Seattle before the early settlers, uh, used wood for almost everything. Um, and so it would be almost impossible to kind of have like poison in your buildings, even if you wanted to. Um, and I think here he's also, he's making reference to sort of like lead and asbestos and, you know, there's sort of really hideous chemicals in pretty much every building project that I can, uh, product that I can imagine, or at least a substantial portion of them. Um, he's, he also provides a fantastic quote, <laughs> uh, relating to the installation of hazardous material. Um, if you poison your boss a little each day, it's called murder. If your boss poisons you a little each day, it's called a threshold limit value, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is from, uh, James P. Keogh, ND, MD. Um, and I think it's, he thinks it's a quote that's in reference to kind of OSHA standards about asbestos. Yeah, when mm-hmm. I worked in a conservation firm in San Francisco, um, when I started my internship, this was in college, I had to have my like lead levels tested yeah. so that they knew what I 
was at when I started. Wow. Um, so when at the end of the internship, if you know my levels were up, they could compare it to a baseline. Wow. Um, but you know, I voluntarily <laughs> did that job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you literally volunteered for that job, as no, in no, you no. didn't get paid, or you voluntarily <laughs> signed up no, no, for no. it. I, don't worry, architecture lobby members. I do not need to be struck by lightning. I was paid for that internship. <laughs> <laughs> they, um, they, but to be clear, we don't want to strike the interns down right. with lightning. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't need to. Yeah, yeah I don't know. Th- that employer does not need to be struck sure. by lightning. Yes, that was a good employer. But but, I, okay, you're on the precipice I, of saying I guess something. I. <laughs> It it seems difficult for me to say that you can do anything free of uh, poison and that, like, okay, if you are an early settler in Seattle or an, like, and you are building a house out of, uh, you know, you're building a log cabin yeah. or something, you are still going to be susceptible to, like, different types of molds mm, that will develop sure. in, in, right. in wet walls. Um, I think there's – it's always maybe a different type of poison, but I think poison – Free seems yeah. seems difficult, right? I mean, even if you built an adobe hut, you'd you'd have issues or thatch. Yeah, you'd still have issues with mold and. I mean, there's a trade off. Sure, you don't necessarily want to go swimming in Imran and asbestos, <laughs> <laughs> to name two popular coatings. Yeah, but you know, there's also the trade off of. Uh, Many modern building materials you obviously don't want to ignite either because the mm. people that try to sure. put the fire out in your house are going to be poisoned by the, the gases yeah. coming off of it. That to me is a much bigger issue in a sense than the idea that a well-constructed modern building is might have some oil solvents and stuff right. in it. You know. I, I mean, think there are – yeah, sorry, go ahead. You want to – I think that we should all try to avoid being the uh, crazy people that were drinking rainwater that they were paying, like, you know, thousands of dollars oh, for. Oh, the green then, the green poison rainwater? Yeah. yeah and then they, all, what then is they this? all got sick. Like, they bought from uh, Utah. Oh, like, it, oh, was raw, like, it was called raw the water. The raw water. Oh, yeah, beautiful. Yeah, yeah. No, but these are – those are – those, yeah, those those are, like, crazy tech people who – Deserve like, losing like, thousands of dollars. <laughs> deserve it. Yeah. Absolutely uh, deserve yes, it. Yes, yeah. That's um, my opinion, not the opinion of Lumpen Radio. Yeah. Uh, an opinion this this host <laughs> shares. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but don't – I mean, I guess I think there are some similarities to uh, – The question. To the question yeah. that, like, we – there's no, there's no going back to a kind of poison free yeah. world because there are other risks at well, that time. It's it. I know like um, Beatrice Colomina has done some writing about this interestingly uh, mm. about how um, you know like one one of the reasons why like Corbusier one of his five principles of modern architecture was that the building should be raised on pelotes and and sort of the whole modernist project right like in many ways was like about sort of a separation from nature uh, because that was seen as something very healthy right uh, um, and 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 which is really interesting because now uh, which makes sense because like in in 1910 and 1920 like nature would murder you in the ways that you're describing with like mold and like uh, you know bears and things like this Um, but like now now we have a very opposite approach which is that um, uh, nature is we want to like envelop ourselves with it like now now it's not that you want to be separate from the ground you literally want the ground to be your roof right you want a green roof Um, and and so it's it's funny those things are kind of socially constructed in their in their own way, apart from like the sort of technical aspects of like how much or little little something will kill you because something was always going to be a danger. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess I, my first thought was like, yeah, there are low VOC listed building, you yeah, know, and there's yeah. like many um, catalogs for like, you know, like California Code is much more stringent about, yeah. I think, what this question is saying, like broadly read as yeah. poison. But yeah. I, for me, Craig's like the definition of poison is the, the, the moment actually that I want to stop, which is that like, I guess, I, for example, like I'm a big fan of Joyce Huang's work, which mm. who, t- who works and thinks about like what how can like a building's wall assembly also be a home to like the animals or insects that we usually call pests. Right. Like if there are going to be bats in the home anyway, like let's make a space for them or like let's think how about to live in like a kind of horizontal, mm-hmm. like kin driven kind of way. And I guess for me, maybe there's like a way also to not be like trying to go back to like this myth of the wilderness and a kind Mm -hmm. of like pre-poison, pre-industrial condition, but actually to kind of like lean into like new conditions of messiness, some of which are like poisony, but some which maybe just like need to be reframed. Like I don't think asbestos needs to be reframed, (laughs) but I think like um, how we think about um, (laughs) it's going to be the the buildings on air PhD dissertation reframing asbestos. <laughs> I mean, I'm not trying to be like I'm not trying to be like uh, you know naive about like things that are actually dangerous. But I also think like if we get into a territory where like all artificial things are slipping into a kind of bigger category of like that which is bad, like then we get into sure. kind of um, yeah. dangerous territory. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think really for me for me it comes down to kind of like the specifications, right? I mean, like cause so so much <laughs> so much of this is like what makes. Uh, a modern material poison or not is not down to the the chemistry of the thing but like have you provided the adequate conditions and time for it to off gas yeah. right like that's that's a pretty substantial difference between something being murderous and, and not or carcinogenic and not um, and 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 that's a kind of whole weird gray area of design and and liability and insurance and 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 everything else i mean i think about those things as as being there primarily to cover people's asses Mm. in ways that are both productive and non-productive um when really there's maybe sort of maybe along the lines you're talking about a a way in which that can be um not like I don't know, not like us, everyone being a f- uh, worried about liability, but like nurturing to each other, right? Yeah, exactly. um, um, yes, nurturing, nurturing specifications. The, <laughs> the, 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 real, the real buildings on our PhD. Before we go further, though, I'm obliged by the FCC, which I believe is finally back open, huh. to let you know that you are listening to WLPNLP Chicago 105.5 FM. This is Lumpen Radio. Thank you, Jay. Uh, so we... We yeah we are you say are you suggesting that there was like the, for the last month or something we could have just had build, buildings on air like uncut? <laughs> uh, no, actually that that's an interesting question and that that's not necessarily the, the scope of this program. But there, uh, with the FCC shut down, I did wonder if or what enforcement activities would be taken, and it seemed that the answer was none. Uh. But it's it's an, uh, yeah that's an interesting question, you know, because so many government agencies were shut down and. The FCC was shut down for a good 20 days. Yeah. So I actually don't know hmm. if they were logging incident reports or, or that kind of stuff. Not that we at Lumpen Radio did anything to warrant <laughs> an incident report being filed. I want to make that very clear. We did not, in fact, warrant an incident report being filed. But, uh, it, no, it's an interesting question. Yeah. Um, Here's a question. Um, we have lots of wholesome questions for this mailbag. Um, um, I, I'm really disappointed there's not one about an air conditioner in the middle of the room. Well, I, I mean, I think I, someone, I gotta say, I, I did see on in, on Instagram like a number of like 
friends posting like like a sort of video. This so this is the, this is the thermal the thermal performance related question that we always have. Okay, mandatory. okay. <laughs> All right. and, if we don't talk about insulation, yeah, it's not a it's real not a real mail, mailbag. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> mailbag. Okay. So, the, but the, the, I saw a lot of pictures when we had these like negative twenty temperatures of people with uh, um, you know maybe like really horribly installed sort of awful definitely not up to code sort of like vinyl single pane windows mm-hmm. um, in their old houses um, but had like straight up like frost all around them like ice like packed ice mm-hmm. like around the window frame on the interior mm-hmm. um, and I, this this person seems to be having this issue um, so I'm currently caught in the middle of this insane arctic front and it's 50 below outside my windows are freezing over on the edges and I thought I could use a blow dryer to heat them up and melt the ice but i've heard that if you go rapidly from hot to cold especially unevenly the glass could fracture could that happen what should i do Hmm. my guess is it could not happen with a blow dryer uh because it's just not enough heat yeah like if you take uh something out of the freezer and drop it like a frozen jar and drop Mm. it into a pot of boiling water that could happen yeah but i don't think that the hairdryer can produce so enough heat to maybe a hairdryer is actually a really good option versus like a creme brulee torch <laughs> <laughs> yes, or that something. is a bad idea <laughs> also open flame in your home yes uh, yeah. on something that is not a creamy egg based substance <laughs> is yeah. a bad idea <laughs> yeah well yeah I also think too um, they would be better off I think getting a dehumidifier in the space to try uh, to cut down on the amount of vapor hitting the window and freezing yeah yeah, but that will also make it feel colder in your home maybe well but I mean that's the issue the reason they're getting frost is because there's water in the air the water's I mean that's just how science works I mean where the ice isn't coming out of nowhere it's coming because you've got water in the air yeah and and then I would take pictures of it and almost certainly um, you know Argue with your landlord. Um, I mean, it's 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 those those w- windows are clearly not not up to any kind of code. I don't know. Um, Isn't dry bulb temperature higher than wet bulb temperature? Um, I don't the know. The air feels warmer the drier it is, not yeah. the wetter it is. Um, yeah. You just feel no, more uncomfortable but, the more humid it is. But uh, no, I I don't know. I'd have to yes, which is the psychrometric chart, which is what we'd have to look at. And I don't know, like, I'm surprised I don't have a go-to psycho- <laughs> psychrometric chart for, for buildings on air purposes. Like, we should put one up in the studio yeah. just, just to, re- to reference. Um, but should I, we start bringing the uh, mechanical, uh, electrical, and plumbing systems for uh, buildings? Yes, buttons? our, our, our MEEB, look it up. Uh, I don't know. And we do have, um, um, for, what's, what's, what's the show afterwards? The beer show called again? Beer, the Beer Temple beer, Inside the beer of Temple Sa- yeah. yeah, the Beer Temple, one of those guys um, comes in. And he listens to buildings on air. Oh, Big way. Steve, of course. Yeah, yeah. And, and he and is a building engineer. Yeah. Yes, yeah. and so he's often um, <laughs> the one telling us the one doing. Peer yeah, exactly. For us. <laughs> he's he's doing peer review, so we usually hear what we've what we've said wrong um, um, uh, while we're switching out. Um, but <laughs> disclaimer: if, none of this is advice. <laughs> right, right. If if you're listening, uh, Steve, tell tell us when you get here. If if you do, they have a live show today. They do not have a live no, show. Today. All right. Well, next time. Um, ne- next time they're in, they'll write they'll. us in, help us out. <laughs> but um, yeah, I'm not I'm not sure. Um, I think. I think in winter humidity is better. I want to keep as much humidity in my house as I can. That's just that's me. crazy. Because yeah. um, you're an Atlanta boy. Yes, that's right. You're <laughs> crazy. Yeah. yeah, it's true. Crazy. I mean, and dry it out in the summer with the air conditioner. 
But the point is, you, yes, you but, can use a blow dryer. Don't use a heat gun. Yeah. And don't <laughs> use a torch. But if it's, and don't set your house on fire. But, I, but if you have. Why do they want to do it so they exactly. can see out the windows? Just well, leave it. Yeah. If you, which is my real piece of advice because if it's negative 20 outside and you have crummy windows, any sort of snowpack or ice formation around your window is insulating and keeping air from getting in. Yeah. It's actually a good thing. That's which is which is mind blowing and yeah. kind of terrifying. But um, you know, just let it be, man. Yeah. That's cool. Plus I it do. gives you like that old fashioned <laughs> like frosty Christmas feel. That's yeah. true. Yeah. <laughs> which you we can, all won in <laughs> January twenty eighth. Well you can you can bring out the tree and have a little party. <laughs> Why not? You know, they actually sell, I'm sure, a very poison chemical that you can spray on windows yeah. to make it look like that around Christmas time. Yeah. They sure do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, next question. Um, <laughs> this is a good question. Why don't billionaires build world wonders like new pyramids? Um, some of them have. Yeah. I mean, that's a good, uh, where'd you get in that question from? <laughs> These guys don't pay attention to the news, huh? Well, I'm trying to, yeah, I guess my first my first reaction is to look towards modern pyramids, of which there are a couple. Um, the Bass Pro Shop Pyramid mm. in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Oh, literal Oh, you're pyramids. thinking of literal pyramids. <laughs> We're just like monuments that billionaires have built without yeah. oh. any advice from uh, wiser that's people. That's what I'm, that's what I'm <laughs> thinking <laughs> about generally and more substantively. I think that's what the well, spirit of this question is. But oh. there are some literal pyramids. The Bass Pro Shop Pyramid in Memphis most being people, spe- and the Transamerica Pyramid in Well, San but most Francisco. people are not killing their entire retinue and having them buried with them alive <laughs> for a passage <laughs> to the afterlife to meet Horus. Yeah, you know, the great god Ra Amenhotep is, is not, as far as I know, <laughs> driving <laughs> this giant pyramid building frenzy as he was you know, some... Folks, if, Two thousand years ago. If you want to, if you want to um, change that, you can send an email to buildingsonair at gmail and join our uh, our pro ancient, raw, our ancient, <laughs> ancient pro raw death cult. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Anubis. That's, that's AnubisBuildingsonair at gmail Secretly building under un, in the basement of the co prosperity sphere. Oh yeah, <laughs> a lot of stuff's going on down there. Let me tell you. <laughs> Uh, no, I mean, I don't know. There's been a lot of wacky stuff. I mean, there's yeah. that guy that's trying to build his own island to have a utopian uh, libertarian commi- yeah, community, yeah. which sounds horrifying. Yeah. Isn't that the, yeah. Peter Peter Thiel. <laughs> yeah. That guy. <laughs> the dude who's from pay- PayPal, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just sounds like a total lunatic. Um, there's the dude uh, who built uh, a giant mansion um, in, like, um, wait a minute. Was it in Mumbai? Mumbai. And there's a guy, I believe, in the White House who's known for building grotesquely <laughs> ostentatious <laughs> buildings um, all over the place. And he puts his name on them. Uh, so, yeah. you know. I haven't heard of him. With other, with <laughs> other people's relevant. money, I've heard, too. <laughs> yeah. So, sorry to kind of like kill that one. The Amazon spheres. Um, I had another example yeah. in my head. There, I yeah. think there's lots of Although, you know, I do hope for a world in which these things become just sort of very detached like symbols of like humanity that belong to everyone. That seems like a very optimistic end uh for projects that are wholly sort of self-serving and um uh you know about uh you know I- I- imposing a sort of class <laughs> or other structure on top of on top of the world right what? like there might be there might be a, a world in which um sort of the amazon bubbles just become for everyone that that seems very far-fetched for me mm-hmm. to imagine i don't know but the, the like I feel like I feel like the pyramids are are sort of like that, right? Like they occupy a different place in our civic consciousness now. 
Mm. Um, which has been influenced by all kinds of problematic things like mm. Egyptology and all, <laughs> but but never, nevertheless, there there's that there's a sort of symbol that we all kind of relate to. And you're, you're saying these shows really nice. on the History Channel about Egyptology? <laughs> <laughs> My wife is going to be very very upset by this knowledge. <laughs> the, you know who is the architect who does this is Thomas Heatherwick and the mm. Uh, mm. what was that like? Garden Bridge. There was the Pier Park. He is constantly doing like yeah. There was that that stair in New York. Public stair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. Although he gets roundly mocked all the time, I think. (laughs) Right, maybe rightfully so. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So I mean, I think that's a good question. Well, two thousand years from now, when people are still marching up and down that stair basket, (laughs) (laughs) wondering why the hell it's there. Yeah. Um. How, uh, let's see, how much time do we have left? Oh, you got plenty of time. Okay. Um, <laughs> plenty of time. How much time? I mean, this is insightful, incredible, non-advice <laughs> advice. Um, so here's, here's another question. Tips for interior design. I'm having a pretty miserable time trying to pick furniture and decorations for my new home. was curious if anyone had any tips or anything for the easiest and least stressful way to go about interior design for myself. Should I try buying a few individual pieces that I like and going from there? Should I start off with a bunch of things that match? Any <laughs> idea for placement? I have no idea where to start. Please help. Hmm. This- I'm so annoyed, Craig, that you're looking at me right now. Like, I'm the interior design person of Future Firm. <laughs> Just looking at you because there's a beautiful woman sitting next Aww. to me. Aww. Nice, nice answer. I, I was looking over at you, Anne. <laughs> <laughs> you guys were like, let, let her answer yeah, this. I, I didn't want to jump in there. I was looking at you because you are my partner in a design practice, and I was wondering, <laughs> what are we going to say about this? Uh, we've never really... Done ff and Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I think it would be really fun. I would like to do it. Can I just, like, have a thought? I mean, it's true. It's not Craig's fault. He wasn't looking at me. I was just feeling self-conscious about, um, like, being a woman doing (laughs) interiors. Like, for a long – sorry, this is, like, me just rambling. But for a long time, I, like, resisted doing interior work because, Mm. like, especially at a big office, um, if you're a woman and you do interior work or you do plans, you're not kind of promoted to to (laughs) being a designer who does buildings. So I always, like, insisted on doing exterior wall. Um, But now at our own practice, I like we're working on a kitchen that I love and have like been like so thrilled by. And we just had like a client meeting doing this renovation that's like both surgical and like thoughtful and stark. And like I'm like, oh, I'm like actually enjoying this and good at it. It's like at a material scale. It's like almost at an exhibition scale, a scale that I'm really comfortable at. Um, So I don't know. I guess I feel like I'm having a newfound interest in interiors, but I'm also kind of resisting it because, like, I think there's this, like, gendered history to it in the discipline. So, like, whenever somebody's like, let's Pinterest, I'm still, like, so cautious, right? Like, I don't want to be the girl who Pinterests. I want to be the architect, right? Right. Um, But, in fact, like, I'm good at Pinterest. And I I was going to say, I think you should go on Pinterest. Like, I think there's a lot of um, good stuff online. And I think think we find more and more that our clients – like watch HDTV and like therefore have like an yeah. incredible amount of knowledge about interiors. Like as you know, people come in knowing like vocabulary about kitchens that mm-hmm. is like, you know, nuts compared to what people know about like exterior wall and insulation. Right. So I think there's like good, there's good pop culture stuff that can get you started, that can get you excited. Like TV is a good way to like hear what other people yeah. have to think about furnishings and like yeah. get a sense of what you want to do. Interesting designer story that we heard the other day that has, I guess, very little to do with what we're talking about, but (laughs) has to do with the profession, is that um, one of our clients was chatting with us the other day and asking us about if, I guess he was asking us about if we work with designers, but his, uh, his... 
the the thing that got him on this subject was that recently he had been working with some people on a project and the designer on the project who was like an interior designer mm. picked out some tile and told the client like put this tile at your entryway and the builder bought that tile and installed it but no one coordinated what the subfloor was that the, t- that the tile was on so uh-huh. like Two weeks after it was installed, all of the tile was cracking because mm. the subfloor was not substantial enough sure. for the size of tile. Um, and the owner tried to, like, sue the builder, and the builder said, like, oh, it's not my fault. The designer picked it out, and the designer said, I just, like, <laughs> pick things out. I don't know anything about them. Um, so the, our client was asking us, like, what the what the role of the architect would have been in that situation. And um, so I think it's interesting that there are these, yeah. like, kind of many design um, kind of efforts that leave the architect out and oftentimes have problems because of it. Right. Right. Yeah. Which is super interesting because I think for me too, like I'm, I, I'm like less interested in distinctions between exterior and interior. Mm-hmm. I'm definitely like more interested in like the, the smaller scale. And for that reason, I, I often find myself doing work that is the interior, um, yeah. which is, which is great. Um, and uh, yeah, like, but uh, it, it, so often the role of like a designer or interior designer, interior architect is really just relegated to like picking a finished material when in fact, like it has to, there has to be a substantive relationship to everything else that goes in a building. Otherwise it fails. Right. Um, and I think that that is a, it's a, it's a structural problem more than anything else. It is interesting. And but I think it's a gender. I think it's partially it's totally a gender gendered. problem. No, definitely. Uh, it, because yeah. I, I was thinking when you were saying, uh, I was going to bring this up too. Yeah. The, um, it's a know, discipline and gender problem. And like the way that <laughs> Venn diagram intersects like on the well, tile that doesn't have the right cleavage membrane, that doesn't have the right Exactly. Floor. That's where it all comes to. Good well, use of right. cleavage. Right. Yes. Because, because <laughs> but it didn't used to be. I should point this out. Most interior designers for, for generations were men. Well, like all building trade, well, you know, interiors I, by Bruce and Barrington but is the one that yeah. comes to there mind. There were also also like women who yeah. did design, but not like that, under the right. kind of aegis of like the professional. Like right. that, that was a, that right? was a yeah. more yeah that was homemade. That was a more modern. I but, see what you're saying, but that was a more modern thing. But as a profession, interior design was almost exclusively male, uh, particularly in Britain, actually, which is where uh, interior design got codified. But I yeah. guess I'm thinking, like, if yeah. you look at the I mean, I th- 1933 World's Fair, and there's, like, a bunch of homes there, and those are homes that are all sponsored by, like, magazines mm-hmm. and building trades, right? Yeah. So and then there's, like, men who are designing, like, the steel home of the future, but there's also, like, ladies' home and garden yeah. sponsoring a house of the future that is, like, just right. as radical <laughs> as like the right. you know yeah. prefab house. Of course, Ladies' Home and Garden was so. run by men. Jamie, I hear what you're saying, but like if you go to a contemporary architecture office, there's the interiors department and the architecture department. Yeah. Why are the things separated in the first place? If you like, but but always almost without fault, the 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 uh, interiors department is 80, percent women and gay men, and then. And then, uh, and 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 often, architecture firms will tout how sort of progressive and diverse they are because they'll talk about like, oh, if you look at our overall office. But then, when you look at the breakdown of what types of work are being done by whom, it's like, it, like it, you know, an office that can be really progressive in terms of its overall numbers can can like it, it, it's a totally different story but when you start like, to look at it. To me, it's like a double bind, which yeah. is the kind of um, marginalization of our interiors as yeah. a project, and therefore 
assigning women or other people who are like perceived as other in yeah. any other way to that territory when actually like that could be like a radical really front good for territory, yeah. a radical front for architecture yeah. first of all like in terms of like broader thinking about sustainability like let's not build new buildings let's like make old ones better yeah. right like so yeah. like that could be a radical front that is led by women by queer people by like oh. whomever but like only if the discipline starts to kind of like both realign itself to not marginalize this but also not to like segregate right sure because like i think otherwise you just get like weird problems both like professional conflicts where there's like nobody taking care of that subfloor but also you get people in the discipline who could be like incredible at one thing or another but for one reason or another, aren't able to kind of work like broadly and in a transdisciplinary yeah. way. So I, that's that's why I, like I guess I'm thinking about this a lot. How to pick furniture? Like, right? Like, is the asker a man? Like, I guess I want to know. Like, is it that women? from the beginning are encouraged to say like, hey, I like this blue tile. And everyone's like, okay, well, like she picked it, like <laughs> do you use a blue tile? Like often at a client meeting, like if I say like, oh, well, I think this blue one is right. Like, I mean, I'll never say blue, but this shade of gray is right. You sure. know, they'll trust me kind of arbitrarily. <laughs> good good so feature like, firm edit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget blue, blue. yeah if you'd said shade of gray in our place. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> yeah, just no, no. you. You have, read, you have read on your porch. Um, yeah. But like, can we encourage young men mm-hmm. to also be kind of have like tastes around interiors and furnishings and not feel ashamed or concerned that they have to like pick things right right like i that's what i'm wondering about the asker right Mm -hmm. are they not trained socially to feel confident about this Mm -hmm. i also think that if it sounds like the person that is asking is asking for their uh where they live and i think that the kind of most interesting spaces we've seen the eames house comes to mind uh, the interiors are totally defined by the kind of collections of the people that live there in yeah. a kind of eclectic way. Mm. And it's not like kind of putting on a new suit or something sure. for your living room. It yeah. should instead, yeah. like, my, I think, be some reflection of your lived life. Yeah. My, my, con- my concrete experience. Um, advice for this person is to just do what you get excited about. Yes. <laughs> Which is really Whoa. corny advice, but it's like yeah. if you got really excited about a chair, then like get start it. with that. Yeah. yeah. If you get really excited with like you know like an I think it, like a, like a an, an image from Pinterest, like just roll with that. Yeah. Like find the things. Yeah. You should also have a budget though. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, yeah. when you ever talk about interiors, yeah. and I mean, I did a lot of interiors yeah. at my house. You you need to have a budget, and you need to have some sort of sense. Yeah. I actually always recommend when people are looking at interiors is to go back to the World of Interiors magazine, which is a uh, classic mm-hmm. British publication that is at your local yeah. library. Yeah, it is hideously expensive if you go try to buy it yourself. So don't do that. Go to your local <laughs> library, patronize the Daily Library. Yeah. Look at it. it; is wild. It's wacky. There's all kinds of crazy ideas that you're going to say, this is completely not for me. But it's a really interesting way to look at the interior space. And the fact is the interior space to many people is the most important space. Because I don't live outside my house. Mm. I I live inside my house. (laughs) I'm suspecting most of you do too. Except for when you were living outside your house for the past. Uh, (laughs) Let's not go there. Um, No, I mean, most people, you know, the the fetishization of the outside of the building is fine. That's great. But most people don't live outside the building. They live in it. So the interior is actually the space that you're going to be spending 98% of your time with. So you better think about that and do something right. And the yeah. people that control those interiors actually probably are the most important people in the project. Not to, mm-hmm. yeah, yes, and um, yes, provided someone gives them the agency. Yeah, true. Yeah, uh, true. 
or they win it for themselves. Uh, I'm all I'm all for the the radical self determination of the interior architect. <laughs> 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 um, uh, I think we've got time for yeah, one, one more. more if yeah. we do quick, yeah, more, yeah. if we go quick. Um, in your opinion, what is the greatest building that's been lost to history? Uh, I mean, I shouldn't say the building that I always say. <laughs> well, now you have to say it. Oh, uh, for me, I, well, let me. Th- I was going to say the Valspar building on the way to O'Hare by SOM, and I have a reason why. Ah. But let me just think if there's another one that I should say. By lost to history, you mean forgotten by history, or you mean demolished? <laughs> pick, pick your poison. <laughs> Pick your not poison. <laughs> I mean, I would say Penn Station uh, in New York mm, City, which yeah. was destroyed utterly mm, and was yeah. a great building that should never have been destroyed because yeah. it was twice the size of Grand Central and it was gorgeous. But now we can watch basketball. Uh, <laughs> have you seen the Knicks lately, my friend? They're 10 and 41. That's not basketball. Uh, <laughs> I'm a long-suffering Knicks fan, and I want to tell you, we just traded our best player. You're, I'm sorry. Craig I'm sorry. cannot even name two basketball teams. It's, uh, if I, you I was surprised I got head. it right that it, they play basketball. <laughs> that's, that's, square, you know, that's the only reason you know that is because you know about Penn Station. <laughs> they also play hockey there. <laughs> oh, it's like United Center. Yes, but. it's multi-use. The Rangers and the Knicks are there. That's how you know you're from Chicago. One oh, team. it's like United Center. <laughs> one team <laughs> One team matters more than the other to this person. <laughs> Sorry, I'll shut up now. No, we know nothing about sports, so this banter can only go so far. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, yeah, we, Kiefer and I could do it. Oh, yes, we could yes, do it. That's, that's true. true. That's true. Um, Poor Zingas to Dallas. <laughs> <laughs> I can say why I like the Valspar building, yeah, but I'm just not sure I would call that like lost to history in the sense that I guess we – to me, it's lost history in the sense that it doesn't um, – it's not in a lineup of SOM's most famous mm-hmm. buildings, right? If we think about SOM's most famous buildings in Chicago, everyone thinks Sears, Hancock, um, and that building of which we must not speak, um, uh, you know. And Oh, the, yeah. the Trump building? <laughs> <I was laughs> you like, know, it's like, it's like Voldemort. I yeah. like, try not to say his name. Um, but uh, the O'Hare, O'Hare Plaza was a mm. building built in mid-century, and it was like a first example of early computation at SOM. So a mm. client said to SOM, hey, I want to build this building here. I don't care anything about what it looks like. I just want it to be the highest return on my investment. So SOM, mm. early computation, when they had like these IBM computers as big as refrigerators, wrote this program that looked at um, like lease span structure uh exterior wall and heating and cooling to do like the most efficient building um so it's actually like the most um Hmm. it's like a super normal (laughs) building Um, and then they use that same uh algorithm to do kind of buildings all through the uh 60s 70s and even into the 80s Uh, hancock is actually um built on that that uh Hmm. that computational formula as well so um it's totally nondescript it's, I mean, it's beautiful in its own way, I think, but um, it's a building that I think actually marks the kind of like important moment in Tall Tower history that yeah. I, I love. Yeah. And you see every time on your way to O'Hare along the highway. Yes. Craig has I a, guess, I can tell, more uh, beautiful building. Yeah. No, I don't. I have actually a more like not unknown and Chicago-centric building, I guess, which is the Bavinger House by Bruce Goff, uh, which yeah. was, mm. uh, I think, a beautiful piece of architecture and was destroyed in a really weird way because the uh, the owner's son or grandson or something like uh for a long time would pull out a shotgun any time someone like came to see the house and then like eventually he was so annoyed about people coming to his property that he just like bulldozed the thing and buried it so wow um but it was a beautiful uh i think experimental piece of architecture bruce goff does lots of crazy stuff that i enjoy yeah but you keep her 
you know, I've had days to think about this question, and I don't know. <laughs> you know I don't, yeah, I don't know that. <laughs> Jump I, it on us. I don't know that I have a good answer, um, <laughs> actually, because I'm. I don't know. I mean, uh, yeah, I just, I, I don't know why I don't have a good answer, <laughs> which I think is the more interesting question uh, for for myself <laughs> to answer. Um, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I'll have to think about it. I'll get back to you guys. Well, Next mailbag. Yeah. Okay. Next mailbag? Next More mailbag. historiographic projects yeah, and the, than the and next then, mailbag. And the next mailbag, too, um, I think we'll do a reply all style yes, yes, no. Yes. About, do you have uh, a tweet? I, I, I do. Maybe we can tee it up for this time. It's not a tweet, but uh, the question is, do, comes from Daham, our number one fan, uh-huh. <laughs> official Buildings on Air number one fan, until someone uh, challenges him. Um, the... Um, uh, he he asked a question about the the weird like they look like pop punk uh, album cover sort of American flag copyright notices on PDFs of building codes, which I think has come up on this show before. And Kiefer, you are so obsessed with them. Uh, yes, I am. <laughs> so that's gonna be that's gonna be the yes, yes, no. So you can you can think about this one yourselves, dear listener. Um, and we'll uh, we'll do the next mailbag. We'll see we'll see you guys in March. And uh, when we come back from break, we'll be talking with uh, Corey Smith. So stay tuned. Ann and Craig, thanks so much yeah. for, for coming. Wait, Thank you. Yeah, the mailbag, guys. <laughs> If you enjoy listening to Buildings on Air and other programs like this on Lumpen Radio, consider becoming a member today. More information is at lumpenradio.com. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Buildings on Air. This is your host, Kiefer Dunn, and um, I'm here in the studio now with Corey Smith. Hello. hello. <laughs> it's so lovely to have you on the show. Um, I think f- for a lot of reasons. Um, the the story of how you got on the show is you were like an early fan of Buildings on Air. Oh, I absolutely, yeah. <laughs> fan of fan of Lumpen Radio, and I and you sent an email and you're like, "Hey, I'm doing this thing called the New Prairie School. I think it's right up Buildings on Air's alley. Like, would love to talk to you about it." And I was, and in my head, I was like, "Yes, definitely." And then like replying that like sat on my to do list for like a year. <laughs> it was like the latest like I've ever replied. I remember sending an email and be like this is gonna be super awkward and i sent you an email being like hey sorry i know this is a year late <laughs> but like i'm still down to have you on the show if you are it sounds like a really cool project oh my gosh and um i'm happy that we we're able to work work this out because now you have something it's part of the new prairie school project which i'm sure you'll tell us about um called uh, an essay on the Emil bach house which is happening next weekend next weekend next weekend so, saturday and sunday yeah, so the timing is fortuitous it is and um but first maybe you can tell us about yourself. You're you, you're a composer, a writer, performer. Yes, yes. So uh, those are the three words that I use: is yeah. composer, performance artist, and writer. Yeah. Um. I. Uh, I. Uh, yeah, I'm an artist, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, is just like the shortest way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And and you've and you've been doing this kind of run run of projects that are super intriguing. Um uh, I, I I read the description and like it it immediately had some resonance 
uh, with with me. Um, but can you t- tell us what it, what is the new Prairie School about? What inspired it? What's the ambition? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So the new Prairie School is the it's like this large heading. Uh, under which a lot of different projects occur. Yeah. Um, so the, the 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 piece has been many different things. It's been a stage show last January. It has been a couple of video pieces. Mm. It's um, an essay that's coming out in a uh, in a book later this year. Um, it's it's many different arms of this of this weird beast. <laughs> um, uh, but it all sort of revolves around the old prairie style, right? So this yeah. like uh, this movement in architecture around the turn of the century, um, this sort of like a focal point in Chicago, but happened all over uh, America. Um, and it, it, I think it's I think it's just a really a very interesting movement. Yeah. Um, in terms of its its cited ambitions, so right. I'm like very interested in in right uh, as as someone who claimed the Midwest mm. as a principal source of inspiration. Yeah. Um, in that, in that we uh, we valorize these buildings and we valorize his work, right. um, and and that he also claimed that this was of the prairie, mm. um, and that seems like a little bit of. Um, uh, it seems counterintuitive, especially given the narrative that we're spun about the Midwest yeah. uh, in contemporary American life, which is it's flat and boring and conservative. <laughs> um, and so I think that, that that is an interesting tension uh, uh, and an, an interesting focal point around Wright's work. Yeah. Uh, so the New Prairie School is an attempt to take a look at uh, the work of the prairie style and move it into a contemporary context. Yeah. Uh, to think of it um, of like what does what of value is here and how can we pull it um, into the present day in 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 different incarnations and try to make sense of it. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. Um, yeah, and and, and uh, these questions about like how how you pull pull inspiration and and how you relate to that are I think like um, questions that that many creators we we have to re- reconcile with them kind of all all the time. Um, and so um, tell us about the well. One of the things we were talking about how we're going to do this. Well, uh, like I, I don't know, I'm really bad at being a radio host because I'm always revealing how the sausage gets made. <laughs> 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 but like uh you know you the, this is kind of this body of work is is it has so many different different um, mediums really and uh and 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 it's really hard to translate some of them to radio and so we were discussing how to do that and what we settled on was letterman clip style <laughs> so, which i think is about as as good a way as any um so do do you want to describe the clip and then we'll talk that's how letterman does it or do we want to listen yeah. to the clip and then you can describe what's going on let's describe and set it up because i okay. think that, that will be important perfect uh, so okay, first little rundown. Um, the show "Essay on the Emo Bach House" uh-huh. um, is uh, a deconstructed architecture tour. Got it. Um, so uh, the the audience uh, gathers outside of the Bach House, which is in Rogers Park. Uh-huh. Um, it's one of the few Frank Lloyd Wright structures in the city of Chicago proper. Yeah. Uh, and then we're going to go through the house. Uh, there's like it's like a 45 minute uh, performance. Um, we start on the sidewalk. We head inside of the building, and in the building there are um, four other performers, including including myself, um, uh, who all make music, who all speak text, who all perform movement um, around the house. Uh, And so these two audio clips that we have are are from our rehearsal process. So it's it's a little bit gnarly. And I'm kind of (laughs) I'm very excited to to play it on the radio. It feels very much like uh, like seeing the sausage being made. Um, So please excuse the the audio quality. Um, but I think it is like an interesting um, uh, little peek behind the curtain. Yeah. So the first sample that we're going to listen to is a 
an excerpt from Act Two. Uh, so we have just entered into the uh, the Bachhaus. Uh-huh. Um, uh, you, as an audience member, are instructed to uh, give your coat to us. Uh, we'll go hang it up. Very Midwestern. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I want to be a good host. <laughs> Midwestern actually would be stealing it. <laughs> we're selling it. <laughs> <laughs> this is exactly what I'm talking about. The yeah. real Midwest here. Um, yeah, come on. <laughs> uh, so you have taken a seat in the house, uh, and this is what you hear around you. So this is Act Two. Okay. And you wait. I think, um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about a lot um, is how 
you know, I don't know. Like I, I usually, I, you know, I crack a, I cracked a Midwestern joke and we recently had the Midwestern uh, convergence. We called it of the architecture lobby um, where I cracked even more sort of Midwestern jokes. <laughs> and I think like, and I think that there's um and you know, I, I'm, I'm from Atlanta originally, um, but this is maybe a kind of adopted home for now for me. Um, and, and I'm really struck by the way in which, um, uh, Midwestern, the Midwestern kind of uh, comes comes as an identity, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 the way in which, like like many identities, especially place based ones, like we sort of tell ourselves stories about them um, to kind of about tell ourselves stories about who we are, which I think is like a Joan Didion mm. line, <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But like, uh, but but and and how how that that sort of maybe like a, a response to sort of like the alienation of the world around us in a lot of ways. Mm. Um, in addition to a lot of other things. Right. Um, but, um, but, but uh, uh, the architecture tour, it's never really struck me as a medium <laughs> through which, uh, you know, we, we tell ourselves stories, but it totally is. Oh and and I think, yes. and I, and I, and I really appreciate this as a kind of way of like really, really put, putting that on a, on a kind of pedestal for us to inspect. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I think like the institution of the architecture tour feels like really specific to um uh, to Chicago. Yeah, definitely. Just, like, it's like <laughs> such um uh it is it's such a practice, it's a it's a yeah. tourism opportunity. Um it's this it's this very strange intersection of like history and architectural interpretation, yeah. um and also like money exchanging <laughs> hands. Yes. Uh it's a it's very strange. Seventy year old docents who are volunteering <laughs> for like a multi million dollar not for profit. I won't uh mention it because I would like them to underwrite the show someday. Um but like, you know, I think um but yeah, like I remember right after after the election, I would like see like eighty-year-old, like usually eighty-year-old, mostly like white people, like wearing like red hats, like walking around downtown Chicago, oh, and yeah. being like, "Oh my God!" Like it's a MAGA person. And then it's like, "No, it's a Chicago Architecture <laughs> Foundation docent, <laughs> like who, like bless their heart, is like given an architecture tour about Frank Lloyd Wright or whatever." Oh, right? Absolutely, it's, uh, <laughs> it's very strange, and and I think that they're like. There is something specifically with the Emo Bach House that I, I want to deconstruct, which is yeah. that the um, the house is often framed as a narrative mm. of of the house is is a result of Wright's personal life. Uh, uh, it was yeah. built in 19, uh, 1915, and uh, the year before his lover died um, in a in a just very unspeakable. Uh, murder uh, yeah. at his Wisconsin studio, um, and and I think it's a really easy narrative to draw of like a grieving architect makes a grieving house mm. that's like insular and insulated, and it's a small building and it's really protected. Yeah. Um, and to a certain extent, I buy that. Uh, like to, uh, to to the way that like our biographies like affect our daily lives and yeah. the things that we make. Um, but I I also I don't really love that interpretation in the sense that it conscripts the house to the architect's life um, and doesn't allow the house to really speak on its own. Uh, And so part of the goal of this project is is to really give people a chance to have an emotional experience Mm. uh, uh, with a house and Mm. that the facts... Um, and the sort of like traditional narratives that are that are given in architecture tours um, are really secondary. They are they're interesting and they can inform your view of the house. Um, but at the end of the day, like it's a house. It is a thing <laughs> that you live in and you sleep in. Yeah. Um, and you do these like very boring but also very vulnerable activities inside of. Yeah. Um, and I hoped to sort of create. Uh, a space for for reflection on yeah. that. And so, how, how does the sound enter into it? Is it is the is the kind of um, 
is is the composition is the kind of intensity of it there to kind of make it make it weird <laughs> make it strange like make it something to, that we you think about all of a sudden because it's maybe uh it's it's, it's the, the music isn't sober right in the yeah, way yeah. that sort of an architecture tour wants to make the house sort of a sober place yeah uh, yeah um the the excerpt that we'll play next is a bit more uh it was a lot more sober uh, um okay but interesting. but uh it did feel important for the first thing that we hear once we get into the house yeah. to be something lively mm. and gridded and sort of like jagged yeah um uh the like the metaphor that i've been thinking about is that uh so it is it's uh four instrumentalists and an electronic track uh-huh. of what you heard and then me speaking on top of that um and the electronic track provides this grid mm. it's this like very driving very regular incredibly like minutely specific um grid uh which provides the structure upon which these instrumentalists can provide curvilinear forms mm, um so the instrumentalists i like in in this like symbolic or metaphorical world, the instrumentalists are the people right inside mm. of the house, leading messy and complicated and 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 bizarre lives. Yeah. Um, and the the house, the grid, is consistent mm. uh, and kind of provides that uh, the just the motor, the like endless repetition and uh, and geometry, sure. which is like so apparent in the house. Yeah, definitely. And we'll we'll hear that in this next clip. Uh, so the the next clip, yeah. let's set it up. Yeah. This is great. <laughs> the next clip is uh, is Act Three. So this follows um, that big exciting song. Yeah. Um, and Act Three is about twenty minutes long, um, and it is an unguided portion of the event. So uh, all audience members, uh, which there are only like up to twelve at any given time, so it's Got a very it. intimate crew. Uh, it's a really small house. It's like twelve hundred uh-huh. square feet. Um, uh, the the audience members are instructed to explore the house. Mm. You can go anywhere you want. Don't open any doors, but just experience the house mm. as it is. It's like like I said, quite small, so you run out of places to go really quickly. <laughs> sure. uh, novelty wears away, <laughs> uh-huh. um, and instead, my hope is that you get a chance to really reflect mm. uh, and to really spend a little bit of time, you know, seated looking at the wall in the way yeah. that if you lived there, you might get a chance to do. Yeah. Um, and so this music that you're about to hear is um, is what's happening at that time uh it is like a little bit it's it's sort of it's not entirely descriptive of what happens because the instrumentalists are scattered throughout the building mm. there's one um uh, one musician per room essentially uh and so as you explore you get closer to the saxophone sound you go farther away from the violin yeah. or vice versa um but this is the this is the music that happens uh during that portion of the show got it
that clip <laughs> amazing definitely more definitely more sober I, it's very it's very beautiful oh thank you thank yeah. you the like the little bit of of like composition architecture thing that i want to share yeah. um very quickly is that um in that clip there is this like chord of sine tones that slowly fades in yeah. over the course of the whole 20 minutes um and that chord is um which is this is just like such a nerdy composer thing um is is from the house from the specs of the house oh. uh like i just like assigned the longest wall as the note c and then yeah. use the ratios of all of the the, the walls yeah uh, to create a, a harmony um, so you're literally hearing the house. You're literally hearing the house. Oh, that's very beautiful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's very beautiful. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah. So and and so uh, yeah. Is is there like any last minute things about the show that you want to share uh, with with us or or the the Prairie School project? I mean, I'm 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 sure since this is a cor- sort of a, uh, long long term, I like the header. Um, <laughs> then I'm, I'm sure we'll have you back on on the show the, the next time something comes comes uh, <laughs> under that header. Oh gosh, uh, uh, I would I, I would love I'd love to be back. Yeah, um, uh, I I like. I will, I will say, so the, the performance is happening next Saturday and Sunday. Yeah. If you want more information about this, um, uh, my website is available, which is coreyds.com, C-O-R-E-Y-D-S.com, uh, or uh, prairieschool.brownpapertickets.com. Uh, we'll all get you more information. Fantastic. And, um, yeah, so that's next next weekend. And, um, uh, well, Corey, thanks for coming on the show and, and uh, sharing New Prairie School with us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, that's Buildings on Air um, for this month. Um, we'll catch you next month. First Saturdays here on Lumpen Radio and then on podcasts, iTunes podcasts. When are we going to be back? Uh, March. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and, thank, <laughs> and thanks, producer Jamie. Uh, this show couldn't happen without you. Really I'm, I'm sure it show. could, but it. It, it wouldn't be good. It, it yeah, you, no one would want to hear me running the boards. <laughs> <laughs> See you next month, guys. This has been Buildings on Air on Lumpen Radio. Buildings on Air is a production of Lumpen Radio. Hosted by Kiefer Dunn. Produced by Logan Bay. And Jamie Trecker. Visit us on the web at buildingsonair.live. If you want us to answer your questions about buildings on the air, send them via Twitter at bldgsonair or via email at buildingsonair at gmail.com. This show is also available as a podcast on iTunes.